You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Hello, everybody. Peter Maravellis here on behalf of City Lights Booksellers and Publishers and the City Lights Foundation. I'd like to welcome you to City Lights Live, the virtual reading series that follows in the footsteps of our in-store calendar. As always, we are beaming to you from the unceded ancestral grounds of the Ramatush peoples, also known as the San Francisco Barrier, from where we continue to feature the works of authors we know and love with readings, discussions, and forums moving into the spring season. We'd like to take this moment to make a land acknowledgement and pay respects to those who have come before us as stewards of the land. Tonight, we are featuring some remarkable writers talking about writing. It's great to have back in the house Matt Bell celebrating his new book, Refuse to be Done, How to Write and Rewrite a Novel in Three Drafts. It's published by our friends over at Soho Press. So we're going to get down and dirty tonight. For those of you who are either writing a novel, a short story, or just simply curious about the process, you have come to the right place. I personally love to geek out on this kind of stuff. So uh, Matt's going to be joined by Kirsten Chen and also Jack Junk. We have three really seasoned wordsmiths here. So we're going to be looking at how do you revise, how do you rewrite, exploring the process from page one to its final edit. So Matt Bell is no stranger to City Lights as we are huge fans of his work here. We featured him on numerous occasions. He's the author most recently of the novel Appleseed, a New York Times notable book, also Scrapper, and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods which is my favorite title of all time. Um, his stories have appeared in Best American Mystery Stories, Esquire, Tin House, Conjunctions, and many other publications. A native of Michigan, he now teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Joining him will be Kristen Chen, the author of Soy Sauce for Beginners, and Bury What We Cannot Take. Her new novel, Counterfeit, is forthcoming from William Murrow in June. She's received fellowships and awards from the Steinbeck Fellows Program, Sewanee, Hedgebrook, the Jurassic Foundation, amongst others. She teaches creative writing at the University of San Francisco and in Ashland University's Low Residency MFA Program. She makes her home in the San Francisco Bay Area. Also joining us is Jack Jemk, the author of False Bingo, The Grip of It, My Only Wife, and A Different Bed Every Time. My Only Wife was the finalist for the 2013 Penn Robert W. Bingham Prize for Debut Fiction and winner of the Paula Anderson Book Award. Her story collection, False Bingo, won the Chicago Review of Books Award for Fiction and was a Lambda Award finalist. So uh, really very, very honored to have Jack Jump with us. Uh, currently, they are teaching creative writing at UC San Diego. So join us now in offering a warm welcome to Matt Bell, Kristen Chen, and Jack Jump. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you, Peter. Thanks so much for having us. Um, I'll just say maybe a couple words and then I'll, I'll start trying to get Jack and, and Kirsten to tell us smart things about novel writing. Um, it's really nice to be at City Lights again. I my When my first novel came out, my first book event was at City Lights. So I've been, uh, as long as I've been publishing books, I've been launching them at City Lights, which means a lot to me. Peter, uh, which he probably, you may know or may not know, is also like a fantastic puppeteer. Um, and for my first book event ever for a novel, he did a shadow puppet play for In the House. Um, and I was, yeah, Jack, it's like, it was like the best thing. I mean, it was like, 
almost a bad way to start because it was so good. Um, <laughs> and I was in Los Angeles this weekend and someone came up to me and was like, I saw that shadow puppet play that guy did with you in San Francisco 10 years ago. And I mean, it's amazing that's really stuck with people. So it's nice. I was there. I remember it. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a, it was a fantastic night. Um, and then, you know, across the street and we get to hang out at Vesuvio and, and do the whole City Lights experience we can't do tonight. Um, so that's really great. Also, I've, you know, I've been a fan of Jack and, and Kirsten's forever. And it's really nice to get to spend time with them. Uh, my brother I saw is in the audience tonight who is maybe like the huge Jack fan, you know? And it's really great to sort of, um, my family, I gave them a list of like 20 events I was doing and they said like, oh, we'll come to the one Jack's at. Um, so it's really, <laughs> really nice to get to, to do this with you all. Um, before we start questions, I'll just say Refuse to be Done is a guide to, to novel writing, especially through the lens of rewriting and revision, sort of looking at what I think of as like the three drafts in the title, but really three stages of novel writing. Um, thinking about the generative revision you do, or I do during a first draft to sort of keep you going, to keep you sort of discovering your novel. Uh, the narrative revision that I do in a second draft where I try to make the story and the structure the best it can be. And then the third draft, which I always think of as, as polishing revision. What I really mean is the turn you make from like the writer-based version of the book toward like a reader-based version of the book, something you can send to your first readers or to your editor or to your uh, agent or whoever the next person is. Um, so we'll, I think we'll kind of talk through maybe an order, sort of like the way we think through books or the way all of us are writing them. Um, I don't know how Jack and Kirsten write their books. So I've mostly lured them here so I can learn how to write books like they write. Um, Jack and Kirsten, I, I thought maybe we'd be start at the, the beginning, which is to say, where do your novels usually begin? Where do you, what, what, what do you need to get started? What's the sort of initial idea? And maybe what do your first drafts sort of look like? And I, you have to decide who goes first. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we're playing the polite game. Uh, yeah. um, uh, mo normally my, my novels start with a voice. Uh, it starts with like a sentence that feels like it's somehow, it leads to everything else, you know? And sometimes the sentence changes, but, um, but I seem to write um, a first chapter or a prologue or something like that, that mm -hmm. ends up being a kind of guiding light for the voice of the book that, um, that, you know, can shift and change a little bit, but often remains mostly the same. I, uh, first of all, I just want to say um, how, how much I love this book, Matt, uh, and also how, how much, um, how much I learned from it. Um, but also how much felt familiar, like it felt like a really great balance of that to me that, um, because it, it feels like my process might be somewhat similar to yours, but I think you, you might be far more rigorous than I am. Honestly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, um, but my first draft is usually about, like following the energy, you know, doing whatever I need to do to stay interested and just kind of including everything I can possibly think of. And I might not know why that thing is there yet, um, but, uh, but eventually it, it will teach itself to me or it'll get cut, you know, one of those mm -hmm. two things. Um, and so I love that quote that you had from, um, from Lucy Corrin about how the uh, the story is always smarter than you are um, because that rang so true to me that um, that you know my my first draft is always just kind of flying blind uh, and then uh, and then 
you know, and then after that, I have to figure out what to do with it. So I'm sorry, I've already forgotten. Did you just ask about um, the the first draft of the book? Is that yeah, maybe sort okay. of like where you begin, how the first draft is is like, yeah. Yeah, so just including everything and um, yeah, and usually just complicating uh, on top of complicating to a point where there's no way for me to get out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but eventually I, you know, eventually I work my way out, but yeah. Kirsten, yeah. what about you? Yeah, very similar. I mean, I think for me, um, and look, I've only done this three times. And so I can talk about my three, <laughs> three books, but um you know, I think for me, a lot of times it stems from an anecdote or an idea. Um, so my most recent book, for instance, uh, the book that I have coming out next month, for instance, is centered around this counterfeit handbag scheme. Um, and it actually, the idea for it came from a, a newspaper article that I read in the Washington Post. And I think, you know, certain stories like stick with you. And I find myself like telling more and more people about it. Like, oh, you got to mm. read this thing that I read. <laughs> and, and obviously we're reading all the time. And so those ideas that really are the ones that I say, to, like I find myself telling friends and my partner, those are the ones that I think like, okay, this could be something. Um, and then I think when I figure out who the character is, who the protagonist is going to be, then that's when I think, okay, this could actually be a novel. So it's a kind of combination of like the seed of an idea with character. Um, and then very similar to Jack and also um, to you, Matt, based on, based on your book, like the first draft is discovery. It's just kind of trying to keep myself interested. It's almost like I think of the first draft as a problem. Um, you know, it's almost like I'm creating a problem interesting enough to hold my attention so that I can then solve it. It's, you know, it's like oh, I love that crossword puzzles or something, except I'm also writing the crossword. Um, and um, same, just like, how do I keep myself interested? Um, there's an EL doctoral quote that I always think about that I'm sure everybody, both of you know, um, about writing a first draft actually says this about writing a novel in general is driving a car through a, through the fog and you can only see five feet ahead, but that's all you need to get to the end. Mm -hmm. um, that's really how a first draft feels to me. Yeah. I love that idea of like an interesting enough problem to like want to solve it. Right. That's sort of like that where you're both I love that analogy of the crossword that you're also doing this sort of solutions to <laughs> that feels immediately right to me that you're sort of like setting yourself this task that you can't do and then you sort of learn to do it um it seems to me one of the things that uh like my own uh my students want to know that i want to know that many first-time novels want to know i'll say if you're in the audience because you're writing a novel and you're like writing your first novel that's like a fun thing to put in the chat tell us about it tell us you're writing your first novel because we're i always feel like i'm writing my first novel i'm trying to write my fourth right now um but I think what many writers seem to want to know, what I would love to know in advance, is that the book you're writing will turn out well. That like the effort you're putting in is like worth doing and that it's all going to sort of come together. Um, but for me, there's almost no evidence of that for like an extraordinary amount of time, like, yeah. a, like a weird amount of time. Um, so one of the things that I have to do is forgive myself and then like suspend judgment. Like, I don't have to decide right away if, it, if it's good or not. Um, and so I was wondering, I can see you nodding, so I know you've had similar experiences, but how do you sort of suspend judgment as you're writing this first draft? And just like cheers to Nicole and Jeff and Lauren and Elizabeth and Megan and Lorenzo in the chat who are all writing their first drafts. We're glad to be writing our next novels with you all. 
Um, how do we do it? How do we not get freaked out while we're writing a first draft? <laughs> Please tell me. <laughs> you know, I, think, I think the first thing that was really helpful for me to think about when I was working on my first, my first two books was just understanding that none of the pages were wasted, even yeah. if I ended up throwing them out because I needed practice. Right. And, you know, I needed to get better as a writer. And so all the wasted pages on the novel drafts that ended up not even being short story ideas, like I just, you know, kept in mind, like, those are going to make me are going to make me better, even if I don't, if I don't end up publishing. And there are plenty of pages that I didn't end up publishing. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, that's one thing. And then I think now with a little bit more experience, I kind of trust in my diligence. And like, if an idea doesn't work right away, I think like, well, I know what it takes to get this, you know, it's going to take 10, 10 rounds, 15 rounds, whatever it is, but like, I trust in my work ethic. Um, and I, so I think the combination of both of those things really helps me. Yeah. I want to get like trust in your diligence, like tattooed on my body. Like that's like, <laughs> what a great line. That's you, can dig, you can dig your way into a good idea. I really yeah. want <laughs> Jack, what about you? Uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like I um, have a similar situation in that I don't have a lot of, um, the doubt doesn't set in in the first draft it, wow. for me. It feels like it sets in later because <laughs> the first draft, I'm still convinced that I might be able to save it, you know? Um, and it's just kind of fun to be uh, to be accruing all of the, the I, I call it, usually call it the critical mass of raw mm -hmm. material that you need to kind of move on to the second draft. Um, so yeah, so to me, I don't have a lot of doubt in the first draft, but I mean, I don't know why uh, exactly. But um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think that I agree with the idea that, you know, every time I, I start another book, I it feels like I haven't learned anything from mm -hmm. the last draft or the last book project rather. Um, but I realized recently that um, because it's just trying to figure out a whole new puzzle, you know, um, but I realized recently the one thing that I do have is the knowledge that I was able to work through issues before. And so hopefully I'll be able to do it again. Yeah, I think I that's just want to add, Sorry, just, Kirsten, go if ahead. I could add something to that, like um, there, I reach a point in every book where I think like there's no way I'm going to be smart enough to solve this problem. Yeah. But that's how I know I'm on the right track, yeah. right? Like the right, you know, it means exactly what you were saying, Matt. Like the story is smarter than you are. It's like I hit that point because I wrote a good. I saw. I set out. I made a good problem for myself. Like you have to stretch to really finish the book, and that's how you know that you're improving as a writer. That this is the right book to be working on for me. You know. Yeah. Uh, before I'd written a novel, I, I saw uh, Ann Carson give a talk, I think when Antigonet came out in Ann Arbor, uh, where I was living at the time, and someone in the audience asked her, like, why did you, why have you written so many different kinds of books? And she was like, you want to write a book, you learn how to write that book, the book is finished, then you want to write another kind of book, and you learn how to write that kind of book. And I'm like, right, that's the goal. I want to be a person doing that. Like, I want to always be like, sort of pushing in that way. But I think like Jack said, the feeling that you've been through this before is incredibly reassuring. That's the thing that's hard to convince my novel writing students. When I teach novel writing, I make students start from nothing and write together. So it's like I teach generative novel writing classes. 
And it's hard to convince them after like a month of work, like you'll solve all of this. Like it will be okay. Like it's gonna work out, you know? Cause you immediately get into the mess and you're like, how do these things go together? How do these parts sort of coalesce? Do you have a, a rule for like what's allowed into a draft or what has to be kept out? Is there sort of like a, a filter Like you start with an idea? I'm going to write about counterfeit handbag industry or something, right? And I wrote, I wrote a book that started with an industry, right? I'm going to write about legal metal scrapping in yeah. Detroit, right? So I started with like a thing. Um, how do you know what goes in and what stays out in the first draft? Anything goes in the first draft, I think. Um, I think it's too hard to kind of, looking ahead has never been my strength. <laughs> like, I'm just not a writer who's able to outline very well. You know, I can't, out, and I, you, you say this in the book as well, like, you know, don't try to outline before you write if that's not natural. But I'm also not a person who's very good at seeing the shape of the story. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I'm very lucky that I have first readers who really excel at that part of it. Um, so for me, I, it, I think it would be too difficult if I started kind of putting constraints mm -hmm. on anything too early on. Yeah. What about you, Jack? Yeah, I, um, I, I would say that generally anything goes, but there have been times where I've started to write um, other character mm. uh, threads into a story or, um, or I've started to wonder, oh, well, what if I also talked about this idea through what's happening in the book? And, you know, I've gotten started and realized that um, adding that into the mix was going to be the tipping point where the project became too much for me to manage mm. altogether, you know, and so realizing my own limitations and saying, okay, uh, that's save that for the next project, you know, like, you know, that thing that everyone says about how you just keep writing about the same things over yeah. and over again, you know, so I know that there will be some opportunity for something like that in the future if it still feels like it's um alive to me um but yeah generally anything goes yeah I think I'm in a similar place to both of you I think uh I wrote two novels before my first novel that sort of were just drawer novels right I wrote them immediately went into a drawer like I sort of knew that's what they were um and when I was writing in the house I, I just had this rule, I think because I didn't really know how to write a novel, was like everything I get interested in while I'm writing this novel goes in the novel. <laughs> and for a long time, that really worked, right? It was just like the initial idea could not have sustained 300 pages. But I got interested in other things and they sort of went in. And in my most recent novel, there was like a year where I'm like, I don't know how these things connect. I don't know how these things are in the same book. And sometimes I'd be like, they can't be. There's no way these things are all part of the same novel. But just letting them like live wrongly next to each other made interesting things happen in my brain. You know, it's sort of like your brain starts solving the, the problem of it. And I find that sort of really satisfying. Um, it's good. I, I like this so far. We just agree on everything. So that's a useful <laughs> way to be as a panel. Uh, we have no points of, of uh, conflict. Um, uh, Kirsten already said this, and I think I, I obviously feel kind of similarly. I'm thinking about like outlining, which is usually like a huge stress for, for a first time novelist, like how much you need to know before you begin. Kirsten, she doesn't outline. I do outline, but not first drafts. Like, Jack, is it for you? Are you, do you outline ever? Are you just like... <laughs> I, I don't outline, but I got this thing out of the closet that I'd hidden for myself for the last right. <laughs> I've been wondering about this the whole time since we yeah. got out. It's great. <laughs> I do the index card thing. Yeah. So like each, it's not really scenes. It's kind of more 
like chunks of character mm -hmm. through the novel. Um, but yeah, so I can kind of move them around or I can cross off different events that happen at different times. And then I get really uh, granular with, you know, thinking about um, when different themes are appearing in the book and when uh, when certain like key images show up and if, the, you know, when minor characters appear so that I can make sure that I'm spacing all of that out and, you know, stars on really like pivotal scenes um mm -hmm. but uh but yeah that's the closest thing that i come to an outline is just having a big visual representation of the project that i can uh manipulate uh manually yeah. when do you when do you have this is this board made like starting day one or do you make no, it I, start, I start after i have a full draft yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Kirsten, yep. what about you like when's your sort of like yeah. whatever structural kind of outlining stuff you do when do you do it do you just um, outsource it to your smart friends that are good at it? Like, yes, no, I would like one of those. I, I, probably around draft three. Like, I don't even feel like I know what the story is until I've written about two drafts. But it's interesting because right now I'm trying to outline, uh, you know, my agent is trying to sell a novel early in the process. And so for right. the first time, I shouldn't even jinx it by saying that out loud, but I did. Okay. I read that. <laughs> Um, but you know, like for the first time, I'm trying to outline a book that I haven't yet written and it's really difficult. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's really difficult, but at the same time, I've kind of like the outline has just grown more and more exciting that I'm kind of thinking like, well, you know, maybe there is some value to this, like thinking like pure, you know, thinking very concretely about plot and plot points, which is not something that I, I typically do. Mm -hmm. um, and I, now I'm like, maybe the book will be better because I was forced to, to do this. So I don't know. I'm just experimenting with this right now, but it's an interesting thing to have to, to work in a way that isn't always natural. Right. Yeah. I, um, I tried to write the like, you know, 100 pages you use to sell your book before your next one comes out thing uh, yeah. <laughs> after my second novel. And I, I really like for me, like almost couldn't like I think I didn't I think I might be able to now like I don't think I had the plot brain that I have now. Mm -hmm. And one of the ways I've developed my plot brain is by teaching novel writing because students come to me if he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I should have an answer for this. And I feel like I've gotten better about other people's in some ways. Maybe I'm trying to become the smart friend who knows how to how to help in some way. Um, for people who haven't read the book and, and refuse to be done, I talk about my sort of process, which is I don't outline really at all in a first draft. Um, I sometimes see things down the road, but I'm not really like, this is the structure of the book. And then I reverse outline my first novel. So I make an outline of the novel I've read, written and then mm -hmm. I revise that into sort of a plan. And that's worked for me. But even in that second draft, it changes a lot. So like writing from the plan I've made. Um, in my novel, Appleseed, there's a, a narrative that I think is a heist. It's really like a heist narrative is how I thought about it. But I figured that out at the end of the second draft. I was like, oh, it's a heist. <laughs> I had to like build it all backwards, you know, which is like a really structural sort of thing. Um, so it's interesting to figure out when is best to do that. Um, probably worth saying that if people in the audience are outliners from day one, there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like, this is just like, we maybe are not those people. Um, <laughs> this is fun. Uh, I wondered if we could talk about research, which feels like the other like big stressor for so early writers. I just saw both of you make faces. Um, I'm a big outliner. This, our big researcher, this uh, shelf behind me is my research shelf. I'm sure my research is covered up with these books. Um, but I often start out a novel with like a book where I'm like, this is what I'm writing about, or this is what I'd like my novel to be like. I, I want it to be like this book that I love. 
And then as I write, I, I kind of fill this shelf. And at, at, when I'm done, I box it off and put it in the closet and I start filling it for another book. Um, Kirsten, I know you went to, to China and Hong Kong to do research for counterfeit. You did some in-person research there. Um, Jack, my, my remembrance is that your forthcoming novel, Total Work of Art, was also like extraordinarily, maybe heavily researched. It's, you know, it's a historical novel, right? I'd love to hear about maybe uh, when in the process you do the majority of your research. Like, do you do it before? Do you do it in, in process? Do you at the end? Um, and if you have any like rules surrounding your research practices, like are there things that sort of, this is the best practices for work, research? Gosh, research is so hard. Um, no, I am, I had a heavy sigh because I've, I, we, you know, from the last book that I wrote, Very What We, Can, I, what we Cannot Take, is a historical novel set in China in 1950s, and research was the single hardest part of the book. Yeah. Um, and the reason I sigh is because my third novel, Counterfeit, was actually a reaction to that book. And I said mm. to my partner one day as a joke, you know, the next book I write is going to require zero research. And so it's going to have to be about a topic that I already know about. So it's going to have to be about designer handbags. And then that book grew into a book about counterfeit handbags that ended up taking up a whole nother, like a whole bunch of research because I knew nothing about that. And so, yeah, research is inevitable no matter, um, you know, even if you think you're writing about a topic you know a lot about, research can only help. Um, so, um I think the biggest challenge for me with my historical novel was um, figuring out when I knew enough to write the book, mm. right? And just kind of, um, and I still struggle with that. I, I, I mean, I think I, I made peace with it, but I, you know, I, very early on, I figured out that I could not be an expert in 1950s China. Like people have devoted their entire, scholars have devoted their entire careers to studying this. Um, and so then I had to figure out, okay, what, when do I think I, I know enough? And um, it kind of ended up being, you know, do I know enough to visualize the room that these people are in? Can I hear the way that they talk to each other? Can I see the clothes they're wearing? And if I could do that, then that was good enough for me. And, um, and I think that every writer kind of finds their boundary differently. Like I remember reading that Hilary Mantel reads, you know, she wrote Wolf, Wolf Hall and all these other fabulous books, um, but that she reads every single thing she can get her hands on and she doesn't invent until the historical record ends. And then, you know, <laughs> and then there's Edward P. Jones who wrote that the fantastic book, The Known World. And he right. said he did zero research. Right. So, you know, there's no right answer, but I think that as writers, you have to be pretty, you have to make peace with, with the boundary that you land on. Yeah, I love that. Jack, what about you? Yeah, uh, so the the book that is coming out next year, which is now called Empty Theater, which don't feel bad about that. It's, it, it's actually a paragraph long title now, but the short form is- What? That's great. You're going like a yeah, full Fiona Apple. I love it. It's good. <laughs> yeah, uh, um, but uh, it, uh, it started with, uh, so thinking about traveling for research, you know, um, it, it actually, the, the kernel of the book started with a trip to, it, it's about Mad King Ludwig of Bavaria. Uh, and he, he's the one who built Neuschwanstein, the, the big frothy castle that the Cinderella castle is based on up in the mm. Alps in Bavaria. 
Um, so, uh, so it started with a trip to the place that I would end up writing about a lot. So that was actually kind of great was to have a little bit of knowledge of the place, um, as I was starting to write, because, um, because these castles that he built were, um, were so important to him and ended up being really, um, uh, crucial settings for a lot of the, uh, the events of the book. Um, but then I just started, I did start reading everything I could get my hands on about him uh, and then decided that I was um, equally interested in uh, in several women in his life uh, and he was queer so none of these were love interests they were all kind of um, either friends or professional acquaintances uh, and so um, so then I thought oh okay well the book is going to be about him and these four other women and uh, and so then I read everything I could possibly read about all of them too and uh, and wrote three of the four other storylines and realized that um, Cosima Wagner was a was a storyline I couldn't this is an example of one of the things where I realized I cannot possibly take this on like I can't take on Wagner's full legacy if it also includes uh Cosima because she was more anti-semitic than Wagner was and so uh so I was like I can't I can't write this book with like accounting for her behavior you know so um so yeah, so I, and and now the book is actually just hit Ludwig and his cousin Sissy, and the other people are kind of in the background of the scenes. But um, but uh, yeah, so I was reading a ton, and then I did go back. I was lucky enough to get a six week residency in Bavaria. And I was able to go to uh, a lot of those castles again, and then go over to Austria and Hungary as well, because um, because his cousin was Empress of Austria and Queen of Hungary. So, um, so yeah, so that was really great. But um, but reading your book, Matt, I do wish that I had waited even longer, maybe, to go back to the places that I was writing about for you know again, and when I had a full draft of the book because at the time I was still writing the first draft um, because your point about um, you know kind of going to this place and confirming what you know and 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 being able to like take in the details that you need to take in at that point um, feels really true to me and feels really um, like uh, like that would have been the better use of my time of my research time and the better way to incorporate that into the book whereas I feel like I in some ways I, I kind of stressed myself out trying to make things as historically accurate as mm -hmm. I could from the get-go when really I could have um, eased off a little bit earlier. Yeah, it's a, I mean, it's such a tricky, maybe it's that confidence trick we're talking about in the first draft, like the research can give you confidence, but also like the amount of research it takes to like have that confidence is like really high, where mm -hmm. if you just sort of make it up as you're going along for a while, then later you can sort of fill in in a certain way. Um, Jack was mentioning in the book, I, I talk a little bit about uh, my Detroit novel going, the novel begins and ends in the, the Packard plant in Detroit, which is a three and a half million square foot abandoned uh, auto plant in the center of Detroit. Um, and I, I, you know, lived in Michigan, I lived near Detroit, but not in Detroit, I went to school in the outskirts of Detroit. Um, but I had not been to this place and I visited like two years into the book, I think I had like a full second draft. 
And it was like visiting a dream I'd had. Like I sort of had this like very bizarre sort of experience there um, that I was, I was just trying to see what my character had experienced. Uh, my brother who's in the room with me is an architect and he actually went with me on that research trip. I was writing about these buildings in Detroit and I brought his like architect brain with me. And it was really amazing to have that next to me to sort of see the things I wouldn't see because I didn't have that thing. Um, similarly in my novel, Appleseed, I went to, I was in Iceland for work, which is like an irritating sentence, but it was good. Um, and I've been writing about glaciers and I got to hike a glacier with my wife, who is like a master naturalist and a scientist. And I learned a lot uh, about this place I've been writing, a kind of thing I've been writing about, but being there with an expert. Um, but I, of course, do most of my research in books is probably true of most of us, you know. Uh, I did for my novel, Appleseed, like an incredible amount of, of climate research and science research trying to get these things right. I think I was briefly one of the world's foremost experts on CRISPR, like genetic engineering. I read everything. I was like, I probably could have done it for like a week. Um, <laughs> it didn't last very long, but there was a minute where I was like, I really knew. Um, and one of the things that, that I was trying to pick what research mattered and what didn't. Um, and I think that uh, like some of the historical stuff from my book didn't matter that much because I had muddied the historical thing by changing my protagonist a little bit. Uh, but the climate science felt like it had to be right. Like if I was going to say some of climate change, it had to be sort of correct. And the real gratifying things after the book came out was like watching people at like big climate publication or science publications like think on top of the book because the science was like good enough to sort of hold that. And I was like, okay, that's right. Um, the thing I yelled at for research was that I said someone knit a quilt in the book and, uh, and I got an email that was like, you don't knit quilts, you sew quilts, you quilt quilts, you make quilts, you don't knit them. And I tried to complain about that email on Twitter and like textile arts Twitter came after me and was like, you're wrong. You're the person who should back down here. Um, <laughs> and I feel really good that the main thing I got wrong in my 500 page novel was how you make quilts. Um, seems fine. Um, I, I, I'd be curious to know about this for you all. Um, one of the things people also seem sort of stressed about in first drafts or writing novels first time is feedback when you get it, what you want from it. I'd just be curious when you show pages to other people and what you want from them when you're doing it. Yeah, I, I think I've been extremely fortunate um, with my early readers. Um, and so I have one in particular, um, Matthew Salisis, who I know you, Jack and Matt both know and probably others in, in this room. Um, and he's, a, you know, he's a reader that um, we were, we've known each other since grad school and he's someone who just, um, whose feedback I really trust. But on top of that, he, his strengths are my weaknesses. And mm. so I'm extremely lucky in that way. And so I think because of our relationship, he is the one person that I will show a true first draft to. And, um, and so both of us have this system where we um, send each other, when we're drafting our books, we send each other a thousand words a day via email and we just reply with a thumbs up or thumbs down. No comments. <laughs> you know, the idea is to kind of just like make it something that we can actually keep up with. Like, you, you know, cause like if you have to give feedback that takes a lot of time and all you really need to know or all I really wanna know in a first draft is, is this good enough to keep going? And so that's mm -hmm. what thumbs up means. And if it's thumbs down, it just means go back and rewrite. It doesn't just mean, but I just, you know, that that's a sign that, you know, those thousand words you can go back and rewrite. And for me, it is the most freeing way to draft uh -huh. um, because 
it just makes the stakes feel so low. You know, if a thousand words, if it's not good enough, I'll go back. You know, it, it just kind of simplifies the whole process. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if I get enough thumbs up in a row, then I can get to the end of a draft that way. And it's, mm -hmm. um, it's a system that really works for us. I love that you two are just doing like gladiatorial combat. It's just sort of like. <laughs> well, we were like, how do we make this like not so much work for right. each other? You know, yes. that you could actually do it every day if you're, if we're indeed writing every day, which is not always the case. Yeah. And I want to know how you feel on the thumbs down day. Right. But that's the thing. I would die. Find, I would just quit. <laughs> you have to find the right person. That's what, that's like, you know, like I, if my partner did that to me, I would, you know, we wouldn't still be together. Like it has to be, you know, the right, you have to have the right. Setup. And look, thumbs up, thumbs down may not work for everyone. Right. And the um, thumbs down doesn't mean you're a bad writer. It means right. like this part isn't as good as the thumbs up parts. Yes. Like yeah. revise these thousand pages, a thousand words before you go on. That's yeah. all it means, you know? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, yeah. I like the idea of uh, of a, th a thumbs also potentially indicating, you know, like keep going in this direction or turn back and yeah. Uh, yeah. go back to the last fork in the road. Yeah, um, yeah. I um, I feel like I um, I've done a uh, thousand word exchanges with people before that seems like the magic number um either on a daily or sometimes in in lean times a weekly basis um and um and that's been good to kind of like um like get myself to recommit to a regular practice but in general in terms of actually like reading and responding to the work i feel like i, I usually am kind of um uh, protective with my drafts and save them until, um, well, I think part of it is me not wanting to use up my favors with people mm -hmm. and wanting to make sure that I'm making good use of their time. And so I don't want to show them a draft that, um, that I already know how to fix what, uh, what they're going to tell me needs to be fixed, right? Like I want to fix all the things I already, uh, I know how to fix. And then when I am not sure what I need to do, but I can tell that it's still not quite right. That's usually when I show it to people. Um, and people have, have helped me a lot. Uh, and, uh, like with the grip of it, Aaron Birch solved that book for mm -hmm. me, honestly, um, by, uh, by telling me what some really hard advice, uh, about it and then and I, I sat on it for a week and was like no it, I can't do that <laughs> a book without that you know and then I realized he was right uh and then uh with this most recent book um the writer Amanda Goldblatt was really really attentive to a draft at a certain point that um that ended up being so helpful. But I also uh, feel the need to call out, um, I mean, I've, I've also been lucky enough to work uh, on the last few books with uh, a really great editorial agent uh, who gives me really smart notes uh, and, uh, and also the editors that I've been working with as well. But, um, but I, I, at least my experience has been that oftentimes by the time it gets to the editor, so much of the so much of the big work has been done and the, um, and, and there aren't massive changes. That's not quite as true with this last book. There have been massive changes <laughs> at every turn, but, um, but yeah, with the, with the last couple, um, uh, a lot of that editorial work has ended up happening with, with my agent. Uh, and I'm so grateful for how many times she, she read the grip of it because, um, her poor eyes. <laughs> 
I uh, I was briefly in a writers group with both Aaron and Amanda, so I know this particular like genius group you could might maybe be part of, which is nice. Um, I uh, I'm like a really really late feedback person. Like I I uh, the truth is I think everything that's in Refuse to be done, I don't show it to anybody until I've done all of that, which is like extreme lateness that's way later than normal people I think maybe an unhealthy lateness and I think for me it's part of like my books sound like bad ideas and so like I I can't expose them to people early like if I wrote my agent and I was like as I you know a book I wrote and said I'm gonna do a mythological retelling of Johnny Appleseed if Johnny Appleseed was a fawn and maybe it's also about climate change he'd be like don't um <laughs> maybe he wouldn't but I worry he would be and I would get crushed right um but i have i think i have different kinds of feedback as i go like i have friends that i share interests with uh there's a like an environmental philosopher i work with that we spend a lot of time together like drinking on wednesday afternoons and like we kick around the ideas of the books a lot right like we're working on similar things um and i've also been thinking about how much teaching is part of my like not needing feedback because i'm with uh, I can see one of them in the in the participants list right now. I'm with these great MFA students and really smart writers. I get to talk about writing. I get to talk about process with people. That sometimes means I don't have to show them my pages because I'm getting like the, like, how do you write a novel? How do you sustain writing a novel? How do you be an artist? Kind of like feedback, even if it's not on like my sentences. Mm -hmm. um, and then I'm like, Jack, like I, I want at the very end, I want like people to take as far as I could go and then help me go further. I love being edited. I'm really like, I'm so grateful for the amazing editors I've had in my life that I really want to take it to that stage. Um, I'm going to ask one more question, but uh, I know there's a couple questions in the chat I'll scroll up for, but if you have questions for, for the group of us, for anyone in the group, uh, put them in the chat and I'll ask them in a second. Um, one of the things I did not anticipate somehow, because maybe I'm not smart enough to see it in this book tour for Refuse to be Done, the question people really want to know is, how do you know when you're done? <laughs> it's, it's, it's the only thing people really want to hear from me is like, when can I stop? Um, and so what I'd love to hear from you two is, how do you know when you've hit that place where like, it's time to send it to my agent, it's time to like, it's now somebody else's like thing to shepherd, like you've done your major work on it. To be honest, like I, I depend a lot on external feedback. You know, um, <laughs> it's really hard to tell on your own. It just is. I mean, I think I also, there get, I do get to a point um, where I get really, really sick of the book and I can't, you know, and I just can't, like, I can't, like the, the, the idea of looking at it one more time yeah. kind of weighs on me. And so maybe a combination of those things, that's kind of a, a, how I, that's a signal to me, like, okay, maybe I've taken it as far as I can go. Yeah, like a combination of like despair and a good friend. Yes. Right? Like, yes. <laughs> Jack, what about you? Yeah, yeah, I think that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, it helps uh, someone else telling you that they think that it's ready. Yeah, it definitely helps. But I, I think it, for me, yeah, it's a sometimes it's a certain amount of intuition or it's like a, it's like a surrender, you know, where you're just like, this is the most I can do with this. Like I really, uh, it, whatever else I have to learn, I've got to learn it on the next project because mm -hmm. this, you know, there's like a point of diminishing returns, I think. Yeah. Um, 
there's there's like maybe two points for me one is like uh and this is in the in refuse to be done too like there's like a point where i'm like it's good and then there's some things i do like really push like sort of late stage things but i i really liked your idea of like this is i have to learn the rest of it on the next book i think every book i start writing i'm like it's about these 10 things at the end of the first draft, I'm like, it's about these five things. And like later, I'm like, it's about these two and a half things. At the end, I'm like, it's that one thing. Cool. I'm going to write more books. And the real joy is that you are going to write more books. Like that's the reason to sort of keep coming back to the sort of the well in some way, I think, in that way. Uh, let's take some questions. Are you game? We'll take some questions. Yeah. That's it. Uh, I'm going to roll back a little bit uh, and ask a couple that are a little farther up. Um, there were there were a couple of questions about outlining of like what is an outline if it's not written before the start and we say more about the post draft outline can I like if there is an outline that's useful to you in your process what does it look like what 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 do your outlines look like or what do your structural notes look like I mean obviously Jack you're showing us the board behind you but like or or Kirsten maybe you want to start but like what's sort of a useful kind of outline for you what is it accomplishing. Yeah, I mean, I actually think of the outline as like a map for the book. So like, you know, draft, let's say draft two or draft three, I go through and I just write one sentence for each chapter. And it's kind of like, what is the essence of each chapter? And I find that, and then I tape it to my wall so that when I'm like juggling the 10 things because I haven't narrowed them down to five or 2.5 yet, you know, I can go back to that. I just look up on my wall and I think like, okay, this chapter is about this. This yep. chapter is about that. I do that for the whole book too. I keep revising the one sentence that I think that the book is about. And so, you know, it's not an outline in the sense that it tells me where to go. It kind of just tells me what's at the heart of the of mm. each chapter. I love that. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it, another way of maybe thinking about the, um, the cards that I put up on the wall is um, uh, I also think a lot about those arguments at the start of the chapters of Blood Meridian, Matt. Yeah, love the arguments. Uh, and so, yeah. yeah, if there are people who aren't familiar uh, at the start of all of those chapters, uh, Cormac McCarthy writes, um, like, I mean, you could read it almost as like a little fragmented paragraph or something where it just sort of um, between bullets says um, each of the things that will happen in the chapter coming up, you know, where ch location changes and uh, and action changes. And so I feel like, or, or major events rather. Um, and so I feel like that's that's essentially what I'm putting on the cards. And actually I feel like sometimes um, which I, I'm not saying this is uh, a good thing <laughs> necessarily, but um, but the outline is a way, or the cards, or you know these kind of arguments that I sometimes put into a, a, a word document, ends up being a way for me to slowly become more and more familiar with the novel. Mm. Because one of the things that's most difficult for me, um, and that takes me so much longer than I I always forget how much time it takes me, is to hold the whole book in my mind at once. Uh, and so to have this kind of shorthand uh, document uh, or, you know, map on the wall where I can remind myself of what's happening when and uh, and to who uh, is is a way of trying to um, to learn the book, because it's kind of it's kind of it's always startling to me how um, how 
how unfamiliar I am with the story. Like I just like, you know, I'll rewrite the same scene in two different spots in the book. And then I'll uh -huh. realize oh my gosh, I have to cut one of these. I hadn't realized I'd written this already, you know? So, um, so it helps me work out the story and, and even out those uh, the pacing issues and plot and stuff, but it also is just helping me um, learn the book myself. Yeah. I, I love that. I think, um, one of the, the real nightmares of novel writing is that there's like a limit to how much prose you can hold in your head at once. Mm -hmm. And I think when I was in grad school, I was finishing my MFA, I started writing these really long stories because I didn't want to be friends with people, I guess. And I was turning in these like 40 page stories for workshop. But I think like 30 or 40 pages is like the max prose I can hold in my head at once. Mm -hmm. I can sort of remember on page 35, a thing that happened on page one and I can, I can tweak toward that. And so in a novel, it's, it becomes a mystery almost immediately, right? Where like, I just don't know what's happening in the rest of the book. And I usually write a, a couple hours a day, five days a week is my normal drafting. That's the most I can draft without being sloppy. Um, and then at the end of a draft or at the very, very end of the editing process, I work these crazy long hours. I work like six, eight, 10 hour days. Um, so I often have to do it in the summers for me or, or on break or something. Um, and the goal is really just to jam the whole book in my head mm -hmm. is to like, like be able to like, do that thing where like I'm on page 400 and I'm like oh this is resonating with this thing on page 22 or something um and it's the only part of the process I think where I'm like a movie writer or I'm like a crazy person who like shouldn't be allowed near other humans is like not fun to be around my wife is always like are you going to be like this for like a while like you know it's sort of like it's really unlikable but, but I'm, I'm just so full of the book and I can only do it for a little while um but there's a really sort of hard limit on that um, I think we're, we're kind of running into the last questions. Uh, we might have a chance to answer Jeff's question about MFAs, but I want to, uh, if we can, uh, be sure we answer Andy Rose. Andy, it's nice to see you uh, about uh, this question of Steve Almond's. He said, I saw Steve Almond at a book event a few weeks ago. And when I asked about novel writing and process, he said something like, you need to embrace your curiosity and outlast your doubt, which feels entirely correct to me. Um, any thoughts on that last part? How do you outlast your doubt? and not get derailed by it. For me, it's just about making a, a regular practice where I keep showing up and, uh, and keep writing through those moments where you don't know what you're doing, you know, because if you just say, okay, I'm going to show up, you know, every day or five days a week or whatever your schedule is, or the, you know, the three days a week, you can get 20 yeah. minutes or whatever it is you know if you just keep showing up like eventually you'll figure it out but it might take a while to you know where you're where you're really convinced that it's not working but but you're thinking about it that whole time mm -hmm. you know you're thinking about it and you're you're trying things that eventually you know if you hadn't tried them you wouldn't get to that point where you figure out what it is the book really does need mm -hmm. so um yeah i mean a, a regular practice is is the only answer for me i think yeah. Yeah, same. And I, I alluded to this a little bit earlier, but I think also acknowledging that the doubt is what is keeping me interested in the project mm -hmm. to some extent, you know, that without the doubt, I wouldn't want to work on this book. Um, so yeah, that's my kind of imperfect. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think, uh, I think that seems so important. We talked about this at the beginning, of course, because of Kirsten's earlier answer, but um I meet over and over people in the community, students, other, other people at book events who want to write a novel and they're like, I'm not ready to write this book. I'm going to write this other book until I'm good enough to write the book I really want. And 
you become the person you can write your book by writing it. And there's no other way to do it as far as I know. Um, and uh, in every book, I feel like in some ways I'm starting over. The thing I really retain is what Jack said at the beginning about like, I've been through the stages. So I recognize some of the doubts. I recognize like, I will get through this. It'll sort of be okay, this is part of it. Um, and I'll just second Jack's like regular writing practice. Um, uh, people sometimes get angry if you talk about like writing every day. So let me just say for me, writing many days is good for me. I try to write five days a week. That's my ideal. And I try to look at or touch my book every day when I'm in like a writing phase. Um, even if it's tweak a sentence, even if it's open it up and just like look at the document and like literally read some of it. Um, the times I lose faith in my book is when I'm longest from the draft. I haven't looked at the draft in two months. I'm like, that must be a bad book. And it's very hard to get back into. But if I'm touching it and I'm sort of thinking about it, then it usually stays um, present in my mind in a sort of engaged way. Um, I'm going to uh, signal to Peter that he can come back and start saying goodbye. And I will maybe just filibuster for a minute until he arrives. He's here. And I'll just say, uh, Jack and Kirsten, I admire you so both so much and really a pleasure to get to talk about you and to learn from you tonight. So thank you so much. And thanks to everybody in the audience for being here and for letting us, uh, yeah, uh, pretend we know what we're doing, which I appreciate. Um, Peter, it's your floor. Yeah, man, this has been such a pleasure and ever grateful to, to, to your generosity and the candidness around mm -hmm. talking about these things. So Matt, Kirsten, Jack, thank you so much. And uh, thanks to all of you in the audience for all your great comments and, and you know, engaging with us in this way. Uh, buy a book. We posted links in the chat. Um, also links to all the other books that are our uh, participants have been done. Also want to remind you, you know, City Lights is actually open for business. We're open seven days a week from 12 till 8 p.m. every day. So come on down, browse our stacks. We miss you. Um, we'd love to see you. Uh, tonight's event has been made possible by support from the City Lights Foundation, continuing the legacy of our founder, the late Lawrence Ferlinghetti, through public events like this one, a publishing program, and educational outreach, all dedicated to sustaining a vibrant community of readers, writers, and independent thinkers. So be safe, everyone. Be well. We hope to see you all again very soon. Matt, I will give you the last word. Thank you. Thank you all for being here. Thanks again to Jack and Kirsten and Peter. Thank you to everybody in San Francisco and from across the country joining us. Good night, friends. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.